Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. I trust that you are, you know, I felt pretty good after we left last night because nobody threw any tomatoes at me or rotten eggs or anything like that. And, and, uh, you know, my attitude with teaching this is to just, you know, eat the grapes, spit out the seeds, ask the Holy Spirit to lead and guide you and to all truth. How I many know he will lead you and guide you into all truth? I don't know about you, but I really think that truth will speak to you from inside of you as well as from outside of you. Because something happens when you hear the truth is there's something goes on inside of you that goes, that's the piece I'm looking for. And sometimes it kind of might say, you know, your mind will go, I, I don't know if I, I don't know, I don't know if I, I was, wasn't taught that. But your spirit's going, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Your spirit man knows what's right. How many know what I'm talking about? Amen. I'm going to uh, go to the book of Daniel this morning. We're going to try to continue to orchestrate some things. Let me just review just a little bit. We're going to go into Daniel chapter 2. We'll begin probably in verse 26. I'm going to start uh, reading this from the Amplified Bible because it does a lot of the homework for you. But let me just by way of review look back just a little bit at what we did last night. We started out in Hebrews by showing you that the scripture says in Hebrews 1, Paul talking to Hebrews in the first century, 30-some years into the new covenant, and he says, God hath in these last days spoke to us by the Son. And Paul the apostle called his day the last days. The apostle Peter stands up in Acts chapter 2. He said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last days, saith God, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. That was the second apostolic witness. Then you see the apostle John, I'm sorry, the apostle John, who stands up and says, little children, we know that it is the last time because Antichrist is already on the scene. And I told you last night that was before Osama, Obama, Chelsea's mama, or the last Trump. Now we're just abiding in the... No. <laughs> well, Hallelujah. I just have to throw those words just rhyme so good, you know, you just have to kind of throw it in there. But, uh, you know, but these guys believed they were living in the last days. Now, I don't think they just believed they were. I think we have to assume something. I mean, because I have literally heard prophecy teachers say, well, these guys just believed they were living in the last days. And everybody has to believe they're living in the last days, to which I reply, what else did they believe then that they were wrong about? That gets on a slippery slope for me. Because if you're going to trust the Word of God, you have to trust the Word of God. And if you're going to trust the people that literally walked with Jesus and heard Him say some things, they weren't confused about what they thought was about to happen. But what we showed you last night is, especially when we start to look at the word world, where, uh, where Jesus, when He began to give the prophecy in Matthew 24, said He pointed to all the beautiful buildings of the temple, He's standing on the Mount of Olives, and he said, Do you see all these things? Not one stone will be left upon another that will not be thrown down. And they, then they said, Well, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the world, King James Bible says in the original. The new King James in every translation since that time, and if you look at the Greek word itself, it's very clear that he wasn't talking about world as in global, but the end of an age. So he said, What will be the sign of your coming and the end of not the world, of a global collapse, because if that's the case, we have a real conflict with Ephesians that uses the correct word for world. It says, to him be glory in the churches throughout all generations. World without end is the correct word for world. So he's talking about a world that does not end. That ought to be good news in itself. Somebody says, well, Brother House, don't you believe we are in the biblical 
uh, end of time, to which I reply, the Bible does not talk about the end of time. The Bible talks about the time of the end. Big difference. Because it's not the end of time as no more time. And, and of course, you know, what usually happens is in our mind, we go to Revelation chapter 10, where the mighty angel stands up and says, time no longer. But if you read that in other translations and you look at the correct translations of it, he's saying that there will be no more intervention of time, that there should be any more waiting or delay. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God will be finished. So it's not the end of time. It was the appointed time of the end. And the appointed time of the end was not the appointed time of the end of a global collapse. It was the appointed time of the end of the old covenant. And they were coming out of an old covenant paradigm and coming into a different kind of government. In other words, what was happening is the, the law of Moses. Moses gave you the law, John 1 says, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ and of his fullness have all we received in grace for grace. In other words, there was a whole different covenant that was coming on the scene. Let me say this as well, because I think it's important for me to mention this. One of, the, one of my books back there that's titled From Law to Grace, A Kingdom Paradigm Shift, is like the book I wrote that, that was like not the last one was The Great I Am. The one before that is called uh, From Law to Grace, A Kingdom Paradigm Shift. I think it's one of the most important pieces of work I've done, because what I do in that book is marry the gospel of grace to the gospel of the kingdom. And the gospel of the kingdom has to be there because if we, understand, if we think we have left the law of Moses to be lawless, we are missing the point, which a lot of people left the law. We're not under law, but they became lawless. But when John the Baptist came on the scene and Jesus started teaching, he said, repent, which doesn't mean you need to get saved over and over again. It means you need to change the way you think because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was about to happen was... They were about to leave the government of rules on rocks for the government of the kingdom, which is the government of Holy Spirit. Stay with me a moment. Last night I showed you out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 when I put the circles up on the wall that he says that he wrote to the church at Corinth, first century church, and he says to them, you are the people upon whom the ends, King James says, of the world have come. Every other translation, and the Greek word again there is eon or aeon. It's literally translated, as we read it from other translations last night. You are the people upon whom the ends, plural, of the ages have now come. They were at the back end of the old covenant and the front end of the new covenant. And between those two covenants was a 40-year transition period. That was a perfect example of the wilderness journey when they came out of Egypt headed for their promised land is that it was 40 years and the gap that was between these two ages is where most of the New Testament is written. In other words, the old covenant was fading away and the new covenant was coming on the scene. So as one was decreasing, the other was increasing. And how many of Jesus came to fulfill, come on, the law so that the law could make no more demands on you. As a matter of fact, that's one of the things that I believe Satan was bound from deceiving is because Colossians chapter 2 tells you that he disarmed principalities and powers. And in that same chapter, in that context, he tells you what the weapon of the enemy was, was the handwriting of ordinance that was against you. It was the power of condemnation to make you run from God rather than run to him. 
Now track with me just a little bit. And everything that happened to them, Jesus gave the prophecy in Matthew chapter 24 about the end of the world or the end of the age, literally. And he said, this generation will not pass away. That generation was 40 years long, just like the wilderness journey. Jesus gave that prophecy in, in A.D. 30. The, it came to pass in, in A.D. 70, exactly 40 years, same amount of time as the wilderness journey. And then Paul comes along and says, but everything that happened to them under Moses happened to them as an example talking to the church at Corinth, upon whom the ends of the ages had come. So everything that they saw by type and shadow under Moses was now being fulfilled in Christ. See, I feel the preacher already trying to, I want to, I want to preach instead of teach here. But all of the things that happened to them happened as an example upon whom us, upon whom the ends of the ages had now come. He was talking to the first century church at Corinth. And so you see everything that, that, that he was an example. For instance, John the Baptist says, right, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I mean, oh, in Exodus, they take a lamb out from among the sheep and the goats. They put blood on the doorpost of the house. I mean, oh, they did that for hundreds of years, not really realizing there was another lamb coming. The real Lamb of God. Come on, somebody. How many know they, they, they left Egypt delivered by the blood? Jesus is the night before his decease, takes them to the Passover feast. And when he sets at meat, he says, with great desire have I desired to eat this Passover because he's signaling another exodus is upon us. And then he looks at them and says, this is my body which is broken for you. I'm the real Lamb of God. And the blood is going to be shed, and you will never have to kill another woolly lamb, but we're going to leave something different this time. We're not leaving a physical bondage. We're leaving a spiritual bondage. We're leaving an old covenant paradigm because it, I showed you last night. Am I going too fast? Are we okay? In Revelation chapter 11, I believe it is verse 8, it says, And their dead bodies, talking about the two witnesses, and the two witnesses to me are symbolic of, of Moses and Elijah because they have the power to shut up the heavens that it rain not during the days of their prophecy and to smite the earth as often as they will with plagues. That's Moses and Elijah. That's law and prophets. Will lie in the street of the great city which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. Sodom and Egypt where also our Lord was crucified. Our Lord was not crucified in Sodom or Egypt. Our Lord was crucified in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem was the centerpiece of Judaism, and what he's saying is the bondage we're about to leave and the Egypt we're leaving this time is religious bondage. I'm going to try this side. See, I think it's easier to get people delivered from cocaine than it is to get them delivered from religion. They would rather fight than switch. And people know what's in the hymnal, but they don't know what's in their Bible. We quote a lot of songs, but it's not in the Scripture sometimes. But when, when, when I, you start talking about being delivered from the body, so he calls it spiritually called Sodom and Egypt. So the exodus this time was out of an old covenant paradigm. But watch this. Because when they left Egypt, they were delivered by the blood in Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea, which speaks to me of water baptism. They're delivered by blood in Egypt. They're delivered by the water at the Red Sea. And exactly 50 days after they leave Egypt, they're at the foot of Mount Sinai. God comes down on the mountain. He's excited because he wants to bring this whole nation of Israel 
into relationship with himself and make a nation of priests. I'm going to be to them a God. They're going to be to me a people. I'm going to have personal relationship with all of them. They're all going to be, know me from the least to the greatest. I'm going to make a nation of priests. I'm going to use them to touch the nations of the earth. And the moment God comes down on the mountain, the people said in their tents, we're afraid of him, Moses, you go talk to him. And whatever he says to you, we will do it. And they forfeited a personal relationship with God for a mediator system. God said, if you don't want to read Deuteronomy 5, it's the backstory. In Galatians chapter 3 and 4 tells us that the law was added because of a transgression. That transgression was not just the transgression of Adam that's included. That transgression was they forfeited a personal relationship with God and a covenant that was one-sided, they forfeited the Abrahamic covenant because God brought them out of Egypt on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant, which only required faith. Come on, somebody. And now they have forfeited that relationship for a mediator system, and God gives them the law on Mount Sinai. I said, if you don't want a relationship, you've got to have rules. And the, more, the less relationship you have, the more rules you have to have. Now watch this, because in the New Testament, Jesus comes on the scene. He's the real Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Another exodus has begun. Are you tracking with me? And then we find them in the day of Pentecost, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. And Peter said, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, that in the last days, God pours out his Spirit 50 days after the Lamb is slain. 50 days after the Lamb is killed in Egypt and blood is on the doorpost. They're at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God gives them the law. Fifty days after the real Lamb of God is crucified, and they're in an upper room exactly fifty days, which is the, num- the word the, when the day of Pentecost is fully come. The reason it's called Pentecost is because Pentecost is fifty days after the Passover. This time, in an upper room, God doesn't give them rules on rocks. He gives them the Holy Ghost. Now say with me, because this is one of the most important things I might say. So that in the new covenant, the Holy Ghost is to the new covenant what the law was to the old covenant. Because the old covenant was rules on rocks, the new covenant God restores relationship, and the government of Holy Spirit starts to operate. Because what you've done is repent, you've, you've changed the way you think. You've shifted from the government of rules on rocks to the indwelling government of Holy Spirit, where now the kingdom of God is the government that's in your life. Now, how many know when you got the government of heaven living inside of you and the king himself, because the old covenant was full of demand without any supply, and the new covenant is full of supply, which creates the response of bringing about the kingdom, which is righteousness, peace, and joy located in the Holy Ghost, so that if you get free from law, but don't get gripped by grace, you're going to be lawless. But when you start to repent, which means change the way you think, what you're doing is you are changing what used to govern you, namely rules and regulations that weren't coming from your heart because under the new covenant, help me, Holy Ghost, hallelujah, under the old covenant you were conformed, but in the new covenant you're transformed. Hallelujah. And it's full of supply. And in the old covenant, when God gave the law, 3,000 people dropped dead. In the new covenant, when God gave them the Holy Spirit, exactly 3,000 were added to the church because the letter kills what the Spirit gives life. 
And then God restores what they lost under the old covenant because Peter stood up. When, how many know in the old covenant they forfeited the whole nation becoming a priest for a mediator system? God said, send Aaron and his sons up the mountain. I'll make a priesthood out of them and they'll be to, me, to God for the people and there'll be a mediator system. But Peter grabs that in the New Testament. He says, but you're a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood, and God restores the priesthood of the believer. You know what? It wasn't 300 years into human history until the church had begun to distance people from the relationship with God and start to create a hierarchical system again of priests, where you have to come to a priest to get forgiveness of sin. But in 1500 and something, Luther stood up. Nailed 90-some point theses to the door, said, listen, we're going back to the priesthood of the believer because God wants to have access to everybody. Can I tell you the kingdom of God's alive and well on planet Earth? So we're talking about the government of heaven. We're talking about the kingdom. But how many know they were looking for? Listen, I think sometimes people, their preconceived, this, this really speaks to me. Because their preconceived idea of how Jesus would come the first time was so out of their paradigm that they missed it. And I wonder sometimes if God doesn't want to shake up the way we perceive for fear that we might miss it. Because I think sometimes we're so enamored with the coming Jesus that we forget about the one that's already in the room. Somebody said, no, when he really comes. No, well, is he here or not? Come on with me a little bit now. You know, th think about this stuff. Because what, what, what I think what we realize is that this, God does not want to live in an old flapping tent or a tabernacle someplace. He moved out of that one into this one. Hallelujah. Behold, I, I'm getting way ahead of myself. Uh, Revelation 21 says, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. The message Bible says it like this. Look, look, God has moved into the neighborhood. He made his home in men. Slap your neighbor, tell him property values just went up. Because when God moves in the neighborhood, he starts his new creation project of making all things new. That's the, perp that's the goal of the new creation is that God is making all things new. New. And he says, write this down because these words are true and they are faithful. So he's talking about the coming of the kingdom. And in, in that book back there called From Law to Grace, the Kingdom Paradigm, I talk about how if you move away from law and legalism and don't move towards the government of the Holy Spirit, you become an untoward generation because when our hearts turn toward the Lord, and I know that's a play on words a little bit, but the truth of it is, is that when you're not towards, in other words, it's wherever your heart is towards. My heart is towards the Lord. My heart is towards the government of the Holy Spirit working in my life to produce in me the image and likeness of God because God is not just interested in getting me from here to there. He's interested in getting what's happening there to operate here. And I think one of the main points of Christianity mentioned, here's the, here's the basic mindset of the American Christian. Just give me the basic rules for what it takes for me to go to heaven and to miss hell. And I'm happy. I got my ticket. I'm on my way. And that's so far from what all the gospel has to offer. Because when Jesus started teaching the kingdom, he didn't teach the kingdom as if it was some other world stuff. He taught it as this world stuff. He taught it as if you, you know, the kingdom is like sowing and reaping. The kingdom is like stewardship. The kingdom of God is like a man who sowed seed in a, seed in a field and so on. In other words, he, he talks about this world and those that are faithful. I'll make them ruler over cities. That's not talking about 
I've heard people talk, well, that means God's going to give us a planet somewhere and we're going to rule over cities out there in outer space. No, no, that means God wants to give you authority at least in some dimension, first of all, over yourself, then in your home, then in your, come on, are you, and then, then influencing your communities. Because I think that there are different degrees of leadership and authority and rulership in the kingdom of God. But I think what we need to realize is that this is not about us going there one day and being happy. This is about us receiving what's happening there to bring it here so that we can live in the kingdom right now. Because the moment I got born again, I was translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son and I. I am right now a citizen of the kingdom with delegated authority to operate the business of the kingdom that I represent. I probably told this story here, but I fly, you know, what's bad is i got to drive all the way from Berkeley Springs, either to Washington, Ellis, Washington National, or Baltimore to fly. And I've been on so many airplanes that I got on an airplane. This has been a number of years ago. And uh, 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 the flight attendant says to me, she says, uh, she says to me, sir, I've seen you on this flight a lot. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, uh, you fly out of Washington a lot? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, are you a government official? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, uh, what branch of the government are you? I said, I'm a delegate. She said, a delegate? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, would you like to move up to first class? I said, yes, ma'am. So she bumped me up to first class, and I'm sitting in first class, and she said, so you're a delegate? I said, yes, ma'am. I'm not only a delegate, I'm an ambassador. She said, an ambassador as well as a delegate? I said, yes, ma'am. Hallelujah. Got it. I got my papers with me. We're an ambassador of Christ with delegated authority. She said, well, sir, she said, well, Mr. Ambassador, where are you headed today? I said, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. She said, well, there is no government in Baton Rouge, is there? I said, there will be when I get there. I know that sounds funny, but I mean that from the bottom of my heart. She said, exactly what do you do, sir? I said, I'm a tutor to kings. They don't know they're kings yet. They don't know they're kings and priests unto God. And we started to come to find out her husband was a pastor. and We had revival on first class, which she really found out. Hallelujah. But how many know that's really the truth is that our, our, our mission is that we are ambassadors with a ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself by not counting men's sin against them and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. How many know that's a powerful reality that is our mission right now still in the earth as delegated authority to rule as kings and priests, as a nation of priests. And while that was the assignment God would have given to Israel, how many know the greater Israel of God is now got the assignment as a kingdom of priests? After the order of Melchizedek, and what do we serve? We serve bread and wine. What is bread and wine? It's the communion of the new covenant. Hallelujah. It's the same thing Jesus served. This is my body. It was broken for you. What we, the word consecrate, when you consecrate a priest, the word consecrate means to fill the hands. So what are we putting in your hands? We're putting in your hands bread and wine. That's all we serve. We're serving the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is the communion meal. It is this is my body. It was broken for you. This is the blood of the covenant which was poured out for you. Take it and eat it and drink ye all of it. And how many know he does that to get us to realize that when that comes, it inaugurates a kingdom operation within our hearts. And something in us says, I, listen, let me tell you, admit, when, when, when they started eating on lamb, I, I, I'm sidetracking too much here. But when they started feeding on lamb in Egypt, 
in midnight hour, it was the darkest hour, they started eating the lamb, they started drinking the cup, and at midnight, something hit them. It's midnight, and something hit them that said, I can't live in this bondage anymore. And they put their shoes on their feet, their staff in their hand, and they started in Exodus. Can I tell you what happened to me when I began to understand the finished work of Jesus Christ? And I started feeding and eating on the lamb. When I got enough lamb in my belly and started drinking the cup of the new covenant and the wine of the Holy Spirit, something hit me that says, I can't live in this bondage anymore. Religious bondage, substance abuse bondage, sin bondage, none of it. I can't live in it any longer. I've got something in my belly that's driving me to get up and get out of it. That's what we serve. Everybody preaches the kingdom, though. Not everybody. Some preach the kingdom like it's something way out in the future. On some glad morning, the kingdom is going to come. But how many know the kingdom came when the Holy Spirit arrived? The kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but it's righteousness, peace, and joy. It's located in the Holy Ghost. Now, let's, let's look at the timing of the kingdom. Let's go to Daniel chapter 2. I'm going to begin in verse 26. This is the dream that, the king, uh, that king Nebuchadnezzar had had. And, and let, let me just set the stage for this. Because King Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream. And God was showing him in this dream, but he, he starts to call in all of his advisors when he has this dream. I don't, this, you talk about a high-pressure job. He wants these guys to interpret his dream, except he can't remember the dream. I mean, if I was a soothsayer or an astrologer or some of the guys he had on staff here to interpret, I, I, I could at least fake it or give it a shot if you could at least tell me what your dream was. Because he's telling them, if you don't come up with an answer for this, you guys ain't worth your salt. I'm going to have all of you beheaded in the morning. It's over for you. That's a high-pressure job. And so God begins to raise up a man like Daniel. How many know God always has in place, even in the midst of bad political environments, in the midst of chaos, he's always got a Daniel, a Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego somewhere. Come on, somebody. How I many God always preserves a seed somewhere? And in the midst of that, this, this is where this begins. The king has had this dream. The soothsayers, the astrologers, and all the latest theologians have written their books, and it has all failed. And then the king said to Daniel, verse 26, I'm reading from the Amplified, whose name was Belteshazzar. Are you able to make known to the king the dream which I have seen? And the interpretation of it. And Daniel answered the king, the mysterious secret which the king has demanded, neither the wise men, enchanters, magicians, nor astrologers can show the king. But there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to the king Nebuchadnezzar what it shall be, watch this, in the latter days. Everybody say latter days. Touch your neighbor, say pay attention to this. He says, latter days, watch again, I'm reading it from the episode, watch what it shall be in the latter days at the end of days. Now he's talking about end times like we are. Except he's going to tell you when the end times are, like I have continued to reiterate and show you over and over and over in the scripture. That the last days are not in our future. They are in our past. And that we need to lose a last day mentality and get a new day mentality. I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. 
In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.